0: Thank you, music team, my own, here we go. If you would, join me in the book of Galatians, it's where we've been spending our time. Galatians chapter 4 is where we will be today. If you're not familiar, if you're visiting this morning, uh, we work through whole books of the Bible here at Grace Fellowship, that's our, our usual practice Uh, And this particular book, Galatians, is a letter, uh, and it is written by a man named Paul. Paul was an apostle. An apostle is an official messenger of Jesus. And after his resurrection and ascension, Jesus sent the apostles out to spread the good news. And that good news is that Jesus, the Son of God, had become flesh had lived a perfect life. He kept every commandment of God. He was completely without sin. And yet he had He died a sinner's death. He was crucified on the cross and he did so. He went to the cross willingly for our sins to be our substitute. And then he rose again from the dead. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Uh, The early church was founded upon. That's what men like Paul went out preaching. Uh, And in believing that gospel, early communities of Jesus followers, what we call churches, were formed. Uh, And Paul went to this region of Galatia, uh, a province in Rome, now in modern day Turkey. And he preached the gospel there. And people came to believe in Jesus there. And churches were planted there. But then false teachers came through that same region and they told the Galatians these new Christians that Paul's gospel was incomplete that it wasn't enough to believe in Jesus that you also had to obey Jewish laws the Jewish ceremonial law and so Paul writes this letter uh, he's he's furious uh, he writes this letter to tell the Galatians that that is not the gospel and that if you try to add your obedience to the gospel, you actually nullify it. That salvation is by grace and by grace alone, not through anything that we can add or do. So far in the letter, we've seen Paul uh, the theologian, Paul the apostle. Uh, today, we're going to hear from Paul the pastor. Uh, today, Paul is going to get personal Uh, And so, if you would, turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 8 through 20, page 974, if you're using the church Bible there. Let's give our attention to God's holy word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you. I beg you. Become as I am. For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord. All flesh is like grass and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Our gracious God, would you draw near and would you speak with power? I pray that your word would come with power to our hearts, that you would do your good work in us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You probably uh, had that moment as a child when uh, you had disobeyed your parents in some major way. Maybe you haven't. but you have. Um, and uh, and your parents said, right? Maybe your your parents said to you, "I'm not mad at you. I'm what? See, you've had that happen, right? I'm disappointed." That's where Paul is, right? He 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 breaks his theological reasoning, kind of interrupts the argument that he's making to bear his to bear his soul, as it were, to reveal his heart. He uses words like I may have labored over you in vain. He calls them brothers and sisters, my little children. He says, I'm perplexed by you. I'm at a loss. Paul is revealing his... We've, we've heard his intellect. We've seen the power of his mind. But now we see the depths of his heart. We're hearing Paul as a pastor here. Now, I, I didn't plan this sermon for Pastor Appreciation Month. I know that's what October is. Um, this was not necessarily planned, but it's fitting. Because Paul shows us in this passage what kind of pastors we should appreciate. And I'll go even further and say that um, we, could, we could even say that he's, he's really showing us what gospel ministry ought to look like. So not just from pastors, but also from elders and teachers. And I would even argue all the way down to the person in the pew. Paul is showing us what gospel ministry should look like. And he he gives us four characteristics. One, gospel ministry makes God known. Two, God, uh, excuse me, gospel ministry moves towards people. Three, gospel ministry is accomplished in weakness. And then four, Gospel ministry makes much of Jesus. Let's look at each one of these characteristics of gospel ministry, of what gospel ministry should look like and and bear in mind uh, as we talk about these things, these are um, these are aspirational goals they' are things that we strive for. So as I'm describing this, and even as I say the words, what kind of pastor you should appreciate, I realize my own failures in following these four things. But this is what we aim for. This is what we want to see. So first, gospel ministry makes God known. Now, maybe that sounds like a no-brainer to you. Of course, that's what gospel ministry should do, is make God known. And yet, I feel like I hear a lot of sermons that focus on what people should be doing rather than on what God has done for His people. That a lot of what passes for preaching in Christian churches, uh, in fact, there was a, um, oh, there was a professor, now I can't remember his name, but he would say that if your sermon could be preached just as easily in a synagogue or a mosque, It is not a Christian sermon. Right? At that point, it's probably just moralizing. uh, Telling people what they ought to do rather than what God has done in the gospel. In order for a sermon to be a Christian sermon, it makes God and his deeds known. And that's what Paul does here in verses 8 and 9. He reminds his friends of their history together. He says... You used to worship, you used to give your lives to things that by nature are not gods. That's idolatry. And they were, they were Gentiles, they weren't Jews, they were coming out of, of what we would call a pagan background. They worshipped many deities. And Paul says, well, they're not really gods, they're by nature not gods. And yet, you were enslaved to them. But then something happened, he says. He says, you came to know God. Or, more importantly, God came to know you. You see, that's where salvation really begins. Not with you knowing God, but God first knowing you. God setting his love on you. That's the kind of knowing we're talking about. We're not talking about knowing facts or information about someone, but knowing them personally and intimately. Adam knew his wife. That's the kind of knowing we're talking about. God set his knowing love on these Galatians. He sent them Paul to tell them about it. And they believed and they came to know God. The Apostle John puts it this way in 1 John 4.19. He says, we love because God first loved us. I love this hymn written by Gene Ingelow in the 1860s. The first stanza says this. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O oh, Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. She goes on, 'twas not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me.' Gospel ministry makes that God known to people. And when God is known, people are set free. Paul asks in verse 9, Now that you've come to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? If you've been freed by the knowledge of God, why do you want to go back? Why do you want to go back into slavery? Now, he uses an interesting word, and it's a hard word to know the meaning of. There are several different interpretations. Uh, it's translated in the version I read, elementary principles of the world. Paul's used that same word in verse 3, and it can mean a couple of things. Commonly, it was used to talk about the elemental forces of the world, spiritual forces that made the world run. That's how it was used outside of the Bible in broader culture. And I think what Paul is doing here is he is describing... Uh, remember, he has said that those deities that they worshipped were not gods. They were false gods. But behind those deities were actually demonic powers, evil forces that were enslaving people. He says exactly that, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. So Zeus and Poseidon and Aphrodite, those, those don't exist. They're not real gods. But behind them... Evil spirits, uh, evil spirits use them to enslave people in false worship. How does that happen? Well, think about it. When we when we deify anything other than Jesus, we become enslaved to it. Even good things. Just give you a quick example. If if you deify your children, you become enslaved to them. Not in the sense that you obey everything that they say, right? Not that they become the parent and you become the child. That's not usually how it works, at least not in Christian circles. What usually happens is that your identity and sense of well-being become completely wrapped up in them. If they succeed, you're great. If they fail, you're ruined. We'll travel thousands of miles and spend thousands of dollars to keep our kids busy with things of little or no eternal value. If someone or something threatens our little boo's happiness, we respond by losing our minds. That's what happens when you worship something other than Jesus. You put all of your worth into that person or into that thing and you become a slave to it. And so Paul says, why would you want to go back to that? Now, here's what's interesting about what Paul is doing. They weren't in danger of going back to worship Zeus and Poseidon and Aphrodite. That's not not what they were being tempted with. If you've been with us through Galatians, you know that the the false teachers are trying to get them to obey God's law, to earn their salvation by keeping the law. And Paul does something pretty astonishing here. He says that whether you're worshiping false gods or you're trying to earn God's favor through keeping the law, he said it's the same thing. Both of them will end you in slavery. Here's what here's what that means. If you're a religious person, you check all the right boxes, you come to church every Sunday, you say all the right things, you do all the right things. If that's you, but you do not have Christ. You are in the same spiritual condition as a Wiccan or a Hindu. Both are enslaved. So whether it's through law keeping or false worship, both are in slavery because they do not recognize Christ they do not honor Christ as lord they do not rest and receive they do not receive and rest upon Christ alone gospel ministry makes god known in his free grace and when god is known people are set free that's the first point the first characteristic of gospel ministry the second characteristic i see of gospel ministry is that it moves towards people not away from people look at verse 12 He says, brothers and sisters, by extension, this is a family word. Brothers and sisters, I entreat you, I beg of you, become as I am. Come back to me. Come uh, come to where I am with Jesus. Because I have become as you are. What's Paul saying? He's saying that to reach them with the gospel... He actually accommodated himself to them. He became like them. He explains this more, again, in his letter to the Corinthians, his first letter. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20. He says, to the Jews, he's talking about his ministry in Corinth. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Now I want you to notice, Paul doesn't compromise the truth of the gospel He doesn't compromise the message, but he does accommodate himself to his hearers. He moves towards them, which is the opposite of what the false teachers are doing. The false teachers are saying, No, you need to be like us. You need to be circumcised. You need to to eat certain foods and not eat other foods. You need to obey these Jewish holy days. They're creating an obstacle to the gospel. By saying, become like us. Paul's saying, no, 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 I moved towards you. I became like you. Gospel ministry is incarnational. That word incarnation, that's that's the technical term for, for what Jesus did. It's Latin, in, in. Carne, meat, not meat, flesh, right? That's where the word meat in Spanish comes from. Sorry, got sidetracked. Started thinking about tacos. Incarnation in flesh. That's exactly what Jesus did. He took on our flesh. Gospel ministry follows Jesus' example by moving towards people, not away from them. Paul does not carry out his ministry. And you think about think about the apostle Paul. He is a man of towering intellect. He wrote great theological works that scholars today are still working through and piecing through and trying to explain. But where did he do his ministry? It was not in unapproachable towers, ivory towers of academic learning. It was in the trenches. It was on the roads. It was in boats. It was in homes. It was in city squares. Uh, Paul did his ministry face-to-face with real people. He was in the lives of the people he served. That is gospel ministry. Ministry that moves towards people. So gospel ministry makes God known. It moves towards people. And third, gospel ministry is accomplished in weakness. Paul says... You did me no wrong. I have nothing against you. My tone is not one of revenge or bitterness. You haven't mistreated me. And he reminds them, he says, in fact, you loved me deeply in my weakness. Paul's gospel ministry was carried out in weakness. Which is counterintuitive to us because we love power and prestige and polish I've heard a number of pastors say, for our church, excellence is a virtue. We want to do all things with excellence. Now, do we want to strive to do things well? Yes. Do we want to strive to do things well to the best of our ability? Yes. All right. If you had to choose a restaurant to eat in, and you walk in, you walk in the door of restaurant M, And the dining room is dirty, and there are and there's trash on some tables and the service is terrible. Or you walk into restaurant C and the dining room is pristine, everything is neat and orderly, and the service is good. Even if it costs a little bit more, which one of those places would you prefer to eat? (laughs) Somebody said Chick-fil-A. Like you were reading in between the lines or something, right? It's, it's good to do things well, right? When we, when we do things well, it puts people at ease and they can focus on what's most important. But to the idea that everything must be excellent, I have to ask, is that really a gospel virtue? Because when Paul came to the Galatians, he says, look. I was not, I was not with you in power. The only reason I was with you was because I was sick. I was suffering with a bodily ailment. We don't know what that was, uh, because based on what he says about their eyes, scholars think that that something happened to Paul and it affected his eyes. So it's possible that he could hardly see, and we have evidence from other places in Scripture where Paul's eyesight was probably diminished. So Paul does not come to the Galatians. Looking all that impressive. In fact, he's weak. He's kind of pitiful. So pitiful, in fact, he says, my trial, uh, my, my illness was a trial to you. I was a burden to you. That's how Paul comes to the Galatians. But it's exactly in that, that's how the gospel comes home to its hearers. Paul doesn't show up looking all impressive. He's not winning them with his appearance or skill. And that is exactly how God makes his power clear. Paul writes this, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That's why the gospel has to come in Weakness. Because if it comes with human strength and, and, and impressiveness, then we draw the attention to ourselves. But Paul says, there was nothing about me that drew the attention to me, other than my need for help. And it's in that that God demonstrates the power of the gospel. In that same letter, Second Corinthians, in chapter 12, Paul talks about his own experience. He says that God gave him a thorn in the flesh, something that was... Bothersome to him, to keep him from being conceited. He says that. And it's possible he's even talking about the same chronic condition. And three different times, Paul asks for God to take it away. Do you know how God answers that prayer? No. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. In weakness. Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of the gospel to save helpless people is revealed in human weakness through helpless people. And it's carried out in love. The Galatians, he said, he says, you didn't despise me. You didn't reject me, even though I was a burden to you. You cared for me, you loved me, you treated me like a messenger of God, like an angel. You treated me like Jesus himself. And it's in this way, this give and take of weakness and humility and service and love that the good news of Jesus comes home. And so let's avoid the extremes. Pastors are not celebrities. To the extent that we share the message of Jesus and are faithful to his word, we are worthy of that honor. But that's it. Pastors are not celebrities. They don't need to be worshipped or put on pedestals. But let's also avoid the opposite extreme. I've seen this too. Pastors are not whipping boys. They are not underfed, underpaid, underappreciated people who do the bidding Of whoever the most powerful person in the church is. Pastors are not celebrities and they're not whipping boys. They're simply servants. Who bring the gospel to the church. And they do so in weakness. And the church should respond in love. Fourthly. Gospel ministry makes much of Jesus. Look at verse 17. Paul says they... He doesn't even name them. He just calls them the day. They make much of you. So that you will make much of them. The false teachers. Aim to improve their own reputation. They want to be made much of. They want to receive applause and honor. They want to receive glory and attention to be known as probably good teachers, spiritual leaders, even if that means Shutting other people out. Cutting them off from the grace of God. Cutting them off from God in relationship to him. They make much of you so that you will make much of them. But gospel ministry seeks to make much of Jesus. Look again at verse 19. Paul says, My little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I I won't pretend to know the pain of, of labor. But Paul, Paul describes his ministry like labor. He says literally he is in labor pains until Christ be formed in the Galatians. He doesn't, he doesn't want them to make much of him. He wants to see the DNA of Jesus replicated in them. He wants to see Jesus in them. And that's our goal here. That's what we should want as a church. We should evaluate everything that we, we do by that aim. Is Jesus being formed in people? We want to see people know And follow Jesus. So you ought to ask yourself these questions when you leave every Sunday. Did I grow closer to Christ today? Did I become more like Christ today? Do I love Jesus more at the end of today than I did at the beginning? That's the aim. We can spin our wheels in many ways. And there are many, many good things that we could devote ourselves to. But our main aim, our principal goal, is to see Christ formed in people. And it is labor. It is hard. It's pain. It's exhausting. It's time consuming. It saps your energy, it plays on your emotions. You say things like, how long? When will this be over? I'll be honest, I've asked those questions. That's, that's the labor of ministry. But there's also joy. There's excitement. There's getting to sit on the front row as you watch God bring about new birth and growth. That's exciting. And that. Joy makes all the labor worth the weight. Gospel ministry makes God known. It moves towards people, it's accomplished in weakness, and it makes much of Jesus. And the reason that those four things describe gospel ministry is because that's the gospel itself. God makes himself known to us by moving towards us. He does so by embracing our weakness and serving us in love. Sacrificing not his eyes, but his very life. So that we would be formed in his image. Gospel ministry gets its character from the gospel itself and the more we as a church keep in step with the gospel the more we believe the gospel the more these things will become true of us amen as we move toward...